Welcome to Crisis Management. I'm Alicia Sikirska, and this is a show dedicated to helping businesses navigate their way through the coronavirus pandemic. On today's episode, we're going to discuss the Bank of Canada's latest reports, Uber delivering your groceries, and we're going to also take a deep dive into the restaurant industry, which has been hurt by the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, And before we get to all that, I want to introduce Mark Satov. He is the founder of Satov Consultants and a business strategy expert with more than 20 years of experience. Welcome back to the show, Mark. It feels great to be back. It feels like we've been gone so long. There's been so much that's happened in the last week. So I'm looking forward to getting into all the stories. Yeah, and let's do that. Let's talk about the top stories of the week so far. Uh, I want to dig into the Bank of Canada's report. They released uh, two of their reports, the quarterly business and consumer surveys. Uh, They were conducted between mid-May and early June, and um, things, the outlook is not great, which is not totally surprising considering it was taken in the middle of that pandemic. Uh, Despite the fact that economies are reopening in Canada, consumers are still very worried about the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic, particularly when it comes to employment and job security. And then when it comes to the business outlook survey, uh, sentiment was negative in all regions across all sectors. It was actually the lowest level that we've seen it. Uh, since the 2008-2009 Great Recession. Uh, Not a lot of positives to take away from this report, but Mark, what do you think about it? Well, I mean, I think it's a question of expectation management. So what do we expect it to be, uh, given everything that's going on? And then uh, broader, you know, from a broader perspective, you know, what are our expectations? And I think that it is normal for sentiment to be very low during a recessionary time. We are clearly in the throes of a recession. Uh, I did look back at uh, consumer sentiment over the last 20 or 30 years and watched how it goes up and down during recessions. And when you look at what happened during this one, it's obvious that the fall was much steeper. In other words, it happened much quicker. It was right away and it did go deeper because it was such a sudden shock. Uh, and I think we all felt it. And so I think we'd be surprised if we saw anything else. I think the other thing to remember and the, the chart that I looked at uh, proved this out. Uh, and I also remember speaking in the media, not in 2009, but then in 2010 and 2011. When we look back at those times now, we sort of say, oh, well, you know, this great recession happened and then we rebounded and we've had this 10 year bull run. But it's actually not what happened. What happened was, you know, we had this. Uh, you know, Lehman collapsed and we had we had this shock and then it sort of came back and then we never really had a sustained period of confidence uh, for at least two or three years because we had three good months and then three bad months and three good months and three bad months. So now when we look at what's going on, we sort of say, okay, we definitely feel more confident than we did two or three months ago. Uh, a lot or a lot of things that we were worried about have not happened yet. You know, the housing market is sort of coming back. Uh, job losses are coming back. But it is hard for us to predict the future. And the health experts have given us, I don't want to say they're doing the wrong thing, but they give us more to worry about because they keep saying, well, there could be a second wave. Uh, And uh, yes, there could be a vaccine, but maybe there won't be a vaccine. (laughs) It could happen in a year or in two years. So it's it's actually normal. Yeah, but we are, I guess there are still some small hints. Do you think that um, by the time we get to the next survey, I know it's hard to predict these things, but do you think that we will see that consumer sentiment improve uh, by the next report? Is it every quarter? Yeah. Uh, if it's So if we think about a quarter from now, so we're July, August, September, October, I think in October, 
I don't want to say what it's going to be. I think we'll have more information. So in October, what will we know? We will know whether our friends uh, in the U.S. have found a way to get, uh, I'll say, compliance to public health recommendations and therefore some control of the virus, which I think, you know, for me anyway, that's the biggest unknown because my business has started to improve. A lot of businesses around me have improved and the situation in Canada uh, is definitely getting better. But we all know that if the U.S. consumer does not spend, the world economy suffers. And so I think we are all looking at what's happening in the U.S. with alarm and saying if they don't find a way to get a control of it, you know, we could do what we want here in Canada. But if our export market falls because they're not buying, it's going to be in trouble. So I think that's going to be a key one. Mm-hmm. And I also think we'll, we'll probably have more health data by then. And when I say more health data, hopefully we'll have an indication of whether the vaccine trials that are starting now are showing promise. Uh, and I don't think we'll have a vaccine by then, but hopefully we'll have some prediction uh, with greater confidence of whether we're going to have a vaccine soon or if one of these cures is having a big impact on the government. Yeah, so- and having just more certainty, I guess, in into what the situation is, because it seems like right now it's still... We're going through the reopening, but there's still so much uncertainty. Um, I do want to move on to another topic, uh, our next story, which is Cineplex. Um, They reached a deal way back in December, which seems like a lifetime ago now, uh, to be purchased by Cineworld. It's a UK-based company uh, for $2.8 billion. Since then, the pandemic has hit and that deal has fallen apart. Cineworld said on June 12th uh, that they had become aware of material adverse effects and breaches by Cineplex uh, surrounding essentially the, the company's debt threshold. Uh, So this week, Cineplex has filed a lawsuit against its former buyer over the failed deal, uh, saying that that it was a case of buyer's remorse on the part of Cineworld in the middle of a pandemic that has obviously seen theaters around the world have to close. Um, It's going to take a while, I suspect, to see this settled in courts. Um, What do you make of this situation, Mark? Well, there's so much to make of this situation. (laughs) I mean, of course they have buyer's remorse. I mean, we talked about Amazon wanting to buy AMC. And I think I said at the time that it's a good deal if you always wanted to buy a theater chain and the price of a theater chain just dropped. And I'll say a similar thing here. I definitely would want to buy a theater chain today. Uh, I definitely would not want to buy a theater chain today where I've agreed to the price before the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, because I do believe that theater chains are going to come back. Uh, I do believe that there's a way to uh, watch movies safely. I think they could do concessions safely. I think they could do, um, I think you can get food delivered to your seat like they do at sporting events. I think there's a lot you could do. And I think it's a business that can be healthy, but it's not going to be as healthy as it was. So to say that there's buyer's remorse, well, of course, there's buyer's remorse on the price. The question is just, what are the legal technicalities of the deal? So what is their ability to back out? Uh, And then also... You know, like a lot of things, when things go through a legal, uh, a legal fight, it's not often or it's not certainly not always who's more correct legally. It's who has, uh, I'll say, the guts to withstand the pressure, who has the pockets to spend uh, on legal fees and on and all just the stamina to wait it out. And so when you look at Cineplex, you know, I think you sort of have to say, at what point do they go back to the table? And maybe that's happening already and say, you know what, if you give us a little less money, everybody will be happy because it's not going to be a deal at 2.8. And we're both saber rattling 
But actually, if they came back and said, all right, we'll give you 1.9, and Cineplex says, well, what's the difference between 1.9 and not being here? It's 1.9 to the good. So I know when I look at uh, it in December, Cineworld agreed to pay, I think it was $34 per share. Today, I just checked. Right now, it's trading at $7.94 per share. So it's quite the gap. There's a really interesting aspect to that. Uh, when the When COVID hit, the share price collapsed immediately. And what I think why that's interesting is, you know, a lot of companies' share prices collapsed immediately after COVID uh, hit because they sort of thought the company is not going to be as profitable. But this was a company that had a locked-in deal to sell itself at $34 a share. And so what's interesting is if the stock price collapsed immediately when there was a deal on the table, it actually means that investors... Now, maybe investors who sort of looked at the structure of the deal or just investors in general said, this deal is not going to happen. And so I think why that's relevant is that it's not just that Cineworld backed out, but investors looked at it and said they're going to find a way to back out. Investors were betting on the fact after this happened that the deal was not going to go ha- not going to go forward. And so to me, I, again, I think that's interesting, uh, not knowing which investors uh, drove uh, drove it or who was selling. But if there are institutional investors who are well-informed and who looked at the deal and they had an informed view that the chances of it going through were certainly less than 100%. Yeah. And I just, um, I want to quickly follow up. You said that uh, you do think movie theaters are going to come back. I know that that um, has been a bit of a question. I mean, what do you think they're going to do now? And and what do you see in terms of a recovery for theaters? Well, I think I think time will tell. I mean, I think the issue with uh, movie theaters is they also have a content problem because the studios have shut down and they're delaying their releases. They're delaying their releases because they don't want to, uh, I'll say, put out their best work when it's not going to get the viewership and you can't leave it for too long because you need hype. Uh, and then there, there's going to be a gap just because they've not been filming. And so I think that uh, actually Cineplex is quite well positioned to do well in that world because they uh, have started other concepts and they've adapted their concept. I mean, the best thing about Cineplex uh, is how forward thinking they were in adapting their experience. And by the way, I noticed that some of the theaters that opened up did not open up some of the VIP sections or the VIP theaters, whereas I would have thought those would be the first to open up because you have more space and you're charging more. And if you're charging more, you actually could afford a little bit less, I'll say, utilization or capacity. Uh, and if you're already charging 25 bucks, you could charge 27. Uh, so I think that uh, Cineplex is well positioned from an experience standpoint. Uh, I think that it's going to be a rough road. There will be some that don't make it, uh, which generally will lead to consolidation. But I think in the long term, this is something that people like. I think there's an experience you get in the theater that you cannot get at home. I don't care what anybody says. Uh, and I do believe that, again, post-COVID for sure, but even during COVID, there's a way to do it and do it properly. Yeah. So time will tell how long it takes. And we'll see what role, if any, Amazon has to play in it. Um, right. But last but not least, let's talk about Uber. Uh, today, the company announced that it is going to be getting into the grocery delivery business. That means that users in Montreal and Toronto will be able to use their Uber or Uber Eats app to actually order groceries. Uh, according to the Canadian press, a demo of this service showed thousands of items available from retailers such as Walmart, Costco, Metro, Longos, the list goes on. Um, it certainly comes at an interesting time. I mean, we've talked about online grocery delivery 
a lot on this show uh, last time about Sobeys uh, launching their own service. Um, but part of the question here about online grocery demand, it's obviously skyrocketed through the pandemic. Uh, but there's a question about whether those levels are sustainable. It's likely going to drop off. We don't really know what's going to happen. What do you think of Uber's latest move? I think you're hitting on a very important point. There's no question in my mind that uh, levels are going to come down. I mm-hmm. don't think that everybody wants to do online grocery. There are a lot of reasons that the experience is not good. Uh, and what we have not solved for is the cost. And, you know, I think what's interesting, I think, you know, the Reese's uh, commercial from the old days, like two great tastes that taste great together. Uh, Online grocery and Uber are two business models and neither of them tasted great before and now they're coming together. (laughs) Like these are two business models that don't work. And then the question is by coming together, are they going to work? (laughs) So like when, and when I say they don't work, there's never enough money in a grocery bill to actually fund picking and delivery of the groceries. And Uber has been operating at a loss forever. Uh, and Uber East has been operating at a loss because there's not enough margin in the restaurant to be able to fund the delivery when customers don't want to pay. So when you look at Instacart and you have to imagine Uber uh, grocery is going to be similar, the way they make it work is they jack up the price on the grocery items. Now, people may not realize it because they there are so many items. When you're buying an Uber, uh, a McDonald's, uh, like a Big Mac from Uber Eats, you uh, know exactly what a Big Mac is supposed to cost. So it's very hard because there's a very small menu. It's very hard for them to fool you. But when you go shopping in a grocery store, there are 20,000 items. And so you don't remember the price of butter and the price of everything else. So what Instacart is doing is they're charging, I think, a 5% service fee. And they're essentially, uh, on average, we did a quick analysis today, uh, charging you 10% above the grocery cost and not giving you access to all the deals. Plus, they're charging you a delivery fee. And so with all that, they're managing to make money. uh, And Uber is going to have to do that. And so I think it's interesting to see whether they'll be able to take share and whether they care about how profitable it is. Because when you look at Uber, again, as I said, it's a business model that's not been profitable. Mm -hmm. Their ridership plummeted with COVID, obviously. Their restaurant uh, subscriber base went up. Uh, Their stock price tanked, has come back, but it's still 20% off. So I think in one way, they need to do it. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, we see lots of Silicon Valley companies who are well-funded say, we're not worried about profitability. And then we'll worry about profitability later. Let's just get this done and get users and get uh, revenue in the door. So I think that's the reason it remains to be seen whether they can make it profitable. Yeah. And one thing that, um, I mean, you raise a good point about it is costly for grocers to to get into the online uh, delivery model. Um, do you think that partnering with Uber, with a third party company like Uber, is a better option instead of having to invest in in the infrastructure and try to make sure you make a profit off what you're saying is not a profitable business? For sure it is, because I because exactly what you're saying, I don't think it's profitable. Uh, and I think they have a lot to focus on. I think what they should be focusing on is getting the best food and doing the logistics to get the food to the store. Doing last mile delivery is a totally separate business. Mm-hmm. And the, the advantage that Uber has, even more than Instacart, is that they have another way to monetize the user base. And so if, they, if Uber believes that the more touch points they have with a consumer, the more they own a consumer. And so if they get them uh, on grocery delivery, they could then sell them more Uber Eats and they could sell them more rides. Uh, they know more about the consumer. They could market to them. 
then theoretically there, I mean, I do believe they should make a profit on each service, but their need for profit on that service is less than the grocers would be. Now, of course, the grocer gets the volume, but as we've talked about, their margins are not enough. Right. And so I think it makes a lot of sense for a lot of reasons uh, for, for them to partner yeah. with somebody who's outside. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll get your advice and dig into some of the issues that businesses are dealing with. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Um, okay, uh, let's uh, move on to our next segment of the show uh, where we dig into some of the issues that businesses are facing in the pandemic and get. Mark your ideas for solutions um, for the fix. Now, obviously, every single sector has been affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. We discussed that with the business outlook survey uh, from the Bank of Canada. But I want to dig into the restaurant industry because they really have been hurting through the pandemic. Um, A recent survey from Restaurants Canada said that a majority of food businesses across the country are still operating at a loss today, and it could take at least a year to return to profitability. Um, This is a big sector in Canada. It employs 1.2 million people. 800,000 people have lost jobs in this sector since April. Um, And Restaurants Canada estimates that uh, it's on track to lose 44.8 billion in sales. There's a lot to tackle here um, because it includes everything from fast food restaurants to, to your local pub down the street. um, And also one of the government programs, uh, you know, that meant to cover rent relief. It's a big one for this industry. But if you're a restaurant owner um, that's trying to make sure your business survives through this period, Mark, what sort of strategy should you be looking at? What is the fix? Well, it's not an easy fix. So, uh, and I, I like the way you open it up by saying, you know, it's different uh, or their consideration depending on what type of restaurant, because uh, you know, Restaurants Canada is an organization I know well, and they're a good advocacy group and. Uh, you know, they sort of start by saying, you know, uh, uh, I'll say they said a majority of restaurants are not profitable uh, today. What we have to remember is that in the best of times, uh, restaurants are often not profitable and a lot of restaurants don't make it. And uh, there are many stats. I won't give you a single one because there are different stats uh, and I'm not sure which one is the most accurate, but a very large percentage of restaurants don't make it past the first year or past the first three years. Now, by no means am I implying that we should not have sympathy for all the restaurants that are having trouble now because it's even harder than it normally is. But it is important to start with the fact that restaurants are a tough business to be in at any time and much tougher now. Uh, And so going back to the way you opened it up, uh, you sort of say, okay, there are different types of restaurants. You start with QSRs. QSRs are actually doing relatively well now because they have different options and you're not you don't have to go and sit there. You can. First of all, a lot of them are on Uber Eats. Uh, and sorry, when I say QSRs, quick service restaurants. Yeah, the likes of, you know, Tim Hortons, McDonald's, fast food restaurants, quick, exactly. They, yeah, exactly. quick service. <laughs> exactly. So quick service restaurants and, and a lot of them are franchises, mm-hmm. right? And so franchise restaurants, their bankruptcy rate is actually relatively low. And that's because the franchisors do a very good job at helping people be successful, choosing the best locations, supporting them with marketing, et cetera. You pay for that, uh, but you get rewarded. And now I think they're doing better. I will say as luck would have it, 
because I think the pandemic is something that nobody predicted. And so it's just kind of depending on which business you're in, you either got hit harder or less. And QSRs were hit hard relative to a lot of businesses out there, but not as hard relative to um, relative to other restaurants. Quick, sir, uh, sorry, fast, casual and casual dining restaurants are, are the next one. Uh, and I would say there you've had to, if you're in that business, you've had to adapt quickly. You've had to reach out to your consumers. You've had to find a way to market yourself on the Internet, partnering with Uber Eats, mm -hmm. Foodora. I mean, we've talked about them or other examples uh, to make sure that you can get your regulars who love eating your food to either come and pick it up or get it delivered to them. Uh, rent is a part of it, but I'll say it's almost an uncontrollable. And I would say the people who are the hardest hit are the small independent restaurants who are a bit higher end where they're only dying in, right? So now, you know, they, they have a patio. That's if they have a patio. I mean, some of them, you just can't, you can't just adapt your restaurant and all of a sudden build a patio. Uh, and so I think, you know, the number one thing is offload all of your costs as best as possible. So negotiate hard with the landlord. Uh, then, uh, you know, your staff, I'm sure you want to keep uh, people on salary if they're key employees, you know, chefs, etc. Uh, but if the government's not paying for it, I think you've got to get rid of as much staff as you can. Again, if you're not open at all. Uh, and then uh, the third bucket is you have to make sure that you're doing everything you can to be online. I'll say there is a fourth bucket. And the fourth bucket is, unfortunately, if you can't make it, it may be better to give in and start again. Because, again, if you're in that independent bucket uh, where the bankruptcies are highest, I think it is often the case that restaurants don't make it. And so you need to understand at which point you're ready to say, I'm better off reserving whatever personal capital I have left so that I can start again when this is over. And it sounds like a scheme, but it's not a scheme. It's what people who lend money to restaurants understand. Uh, you're not, you know, you're being transparent by saying, I'm opening a restaurant. You know, if you, if you close it in two years, it's not like they think that you, uh, you misled them. They recognize that that's a pretty big chance of, you know, there's a pretty big chance that happens. Yeah. So. And there, I mean, this is just such a exceptional time, right? It's, it's not like this isn't, this is not anything but normal right now. Um, one thing that, uh, I thought was interesting, we've talked a little bit about pricing and the potential to help, uh, with your own recovery by, by perhaps adjusting pricing, um, over, I guess it was last week over the weekend. What is time anymore? Um, I, we were out for a bike ride and uh, went by a patio. Um, it, it was in rural Ontario and they uh, had, had a patio set up and they actually had a COVID cover charge of $2 to come and sit at a table um, just to cover the cost of uh, things like their cleaning and disinfectant. Um, I thought that was interesting. I didn't see anyone unwilling to pay for this or, or have that discourage them. Uh, what do you think of of that, Mark, as, as a potential strategy for restaurants? I think the idea is good. I don't think they executed it well. Um, Two dollars, uh, whether in rural Ontario or downtown Toronto, it's a small amount of money uh, for going to a restaurant. And you know, if you're spending, uh, if it's a cafe and you're having a $20 lunch or uh, if you're going for cocktails and and some light bites, you're spending $20, $30 per person, I think the $2 is affordable. And so I don't think you're going to turn away too many people by adding a $2 cover charge. And I think that although they may position it as needing it to cover supplies or extra costs uh, for COVID, 
the real thing they're doing is insuring against people who sit there and don't spend enough. Because at a restaurant, the variable costs are very small, right? The, uh, when somebody comes in, and that's why, you know, if you don't like your food, they're happy to give you a, a new meal often without charging again, because they're not worried about the amount of money they spend on a variable based on each person. They're worried about the fact that they have only so many seats and only so many hours in a day, and they can't give up a seat for that half hour, 45 minutes, or an hour and a half if the person's not going to spend. So the reason they did the $2 cover, in my opinion, is the same reason that bars charge you a cover charge is because they can only have people in there who are going to spend a lot of money. Uh, I mean, $2 is not a lot, but enough money, let's say. And so I would have done it differently. I would have just assumed that everybody who's going to sit down at that place is going to order something. And I would have just jacked my prices up by $2 somewhere here and there. And nobody would have noticed. Because if you if it's a place that serves beers, and it's in rural Ontario, and so they have, you know, an Ontario beer, if it were in Creamore, let's say, uh, they would have just charged $6 for a Creamore instead of $5 and hope that each person buys two, and they would have netted out to be the same. And for the people that sort of thought it was funny to charge $2, it wouldn't have even entered their mind. So I think it's perfectly fair. I think it's a small amount of money. I just think they could have done it a little bit better. Okay. Um, and then, I mean, as you mentioned off the top, for those that don't have patios, and when you... I mean, a lot of these restaurants are set up based on a certain amount of people and tables filling up in a day, as you mentioned, especially those independent restaurants. If you don't have a patio, I mean, what what more is there to do at this point since it's unclear when restaurants are going to reopen in a really significant way? So just this morning, I heard about they're starting to talk about stage three. And if we remember right. when they started to talk about stage two, they sort of got us prepared a little bit in advance. I think they want to give us hope. And I think they want businesses to not be surprised. And so I would, I, I'm not 100% sure. So someone could check the facts for me. But I believe that stage three will allow uh, sit in restaurants. I, I know it includes gyms. And so I'm assuming if they're including gyms, they will uh, include sit down restaurants. So I assume it's around the corner. It's not too far. But presumably still with like physically distance, right? You're not going to be able to cram as many people in the restaurant Correct. as you were able to before. And I'm sure that that's got to change the, the economics of operating. For sure. But uh, I hope, uh, especially during the summer when people have more flexible schedules uh, and on weekends, I hope that what happens is people, uh, you could get mostly the same number of people in a day, not exactly, but spreading them out more. So if you think about, you know, a lunch rush and a dinner rush and big gaps in between, oftentimes when you go to a restaurant on the weekend, the lunch rush is longer and the dinner rush is longer because people have more flexibility in their schedules. And we've talked about this in other areas of retail where uh, it takes longer to go through or capacity is less, but uh, you can spread it out. So you could do things to manage that with pricing, right? So you can do, you know, like we always joke about, you know, in Florida, the early bird special, but the reason they do the early bird special in Florida at four 30 for dinner, um, get is people in early. Well, they get people in early and that's capacity that otherwise would go unused. Yeah. And so the marginal cost is very low. So there are a lot of different things you could do when that happens in the meantime, unfortunately it's all about cost and uh, pick up and delivery. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's all they really can do. Yeah. Okay. Um, thank you for your thoughts on that. We'll be keeping a close eye on the restaurant industry as reopenings continue and the rules change, as you mentioned about that next stage, but let's switch topics a little bit here um, onto something potentially a little bit more positive. Um, and that's people that are actually looking at opening businesses, not closing them um, because there have been people that were looking at opening a new business and then 
March hit, the pandemic hit, and and they've been forced to sit on the sidelines um, as they wait for the uncertainty to to ease and lockdowns, you know, to to ease as well. Um, I mean, what do you think, Mark? Is opening up a business at this time a good move or a terrible one? What's your advice? Well, you know, my answer is always it depends. So, uh, you know, the the it depends on what type of business, and it depends on when you're going to open. So, uh, I, for instance, uh, have a new business idea, and I am starting the planning for a new business that I hope is going to launch in about a year. And I'm sure you're very curious to know what, what is it, is. it. What is it? And I am sure I'm not going to tell you. But um, but um, I tried. But the, the business that I'm thinking of opening is one where uh, you're going to have to have a physical presence. Uh, and so, to me, the benefit is I'm otherwise employed. And so, first of all, I am not depending on this business to give me um, earn me my living for the next period of time. It's going to take some planning. And so the way I look at it, I sort of say, okay, well, it's going to take some planning. I'm not losing time. I'm going to use all this downtime to plan. And then I'm going to time the opening and the real investment for a time when economy opens up. So I'm not saying that everybody is in a situation where their business idea is like that. But I bring that up because those are the types of things you should be thinking about. So uh, so it is a good time to start a business. First of all, if you're unemployed, your opportunity cost is lower. So it's a good time to plan. It's a very good time to plan a new business. It may not be a good time to open a new business, depending on what type of business. The other consideration is talent. And so uh, there are people right now who are unemployed. So think about the different types of arrangements you could have with people who want to help you with your business and who otherwise may not want to work for sweat equity, uh, but now may want to work for sweat equity or just some other type of arrangement because the government's paying them or, again, because their opportunity cost is lower. So, you know, if you look back in history, uh, Disney, I think, started in 1929. Uh, Hyatt Hotels was uh, either started or acquired during a recession. It can be a very good time. Uh, the challenge with this one uh, is we don't know when it's going to be over. I mean, you could say that always for a recession, but it's really hard to know when it's going to be over. But I would say starting to plan it now uh, could be a great time. It could be time to use your downtime and, and to get other people to work with you. Yeah, definitely some opportunity here. Um, Mark, thank you so much. That's all the time that we have for today's episode. Um, if you want to rewatch this episode again or get more news about the economic impact of the coronavirus pandemic, please check out Yahoo Finance Canada. And we've also launched Crisis Management as a podcast. So make sure you check out and subscribe. You can do that on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And if you have any questions for Mark or, or for me on uh, please feel free to shoot me an email at that's at A-L-I-C-J-A at yahoofinance.com. That's Alicia at yahoofinance.com. And thank you for tuning in. <laughs> <laughs>